0: Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of the Sports podcast where we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation and return to performance. I'm your host, Nick Kane. Today we have a fantastic guest we'll be chatting to about return to play for shoulder injuries in collision based sports. Before we jump into today's episode, we have recently released two fantastic video masterclasses. Now, these videos are more than just lectures and webinars. They provide clear, practical takeaways such as assessment techniques, rehab exercises, and a whole lot more. We have a hip and groin expert in Steve Saunders talking on chronic groin pain and a two-part series with the world-renowned hamstring specialist, Jordan Maniguchi. Head over to our website at sportsmap.com.au for more details and to view the promo videos. As mentioned, we are chatting about return to play for shoulder injuries in collision-based sports and who better to speak to than Adele Fanning. Adele is a chartered physiotherapist and leads the upper limb rehabilitation service at the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin. She has a keen interest in shoulder biomechanics, the sporting shoulder, in injury prevention and has worked with elite athletes from a wide range of sports. She is currently completing her PhD at the University of Cork investigating the use of return to play criteria for post-glenohumeral joint stabilisation. Her work explores the role of 3D biomechanics and the use of novel upper limb functional tests in assisting return to play decision making post shoulder reconstruction in contact athletes. Really looking forward to what she has to say and without further ado, welcome Adele. All right. So uh, welcome, Adele.
1: Hi, Nick. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, Thanks very much for being here. It's uh, fantastic to have you all the way from Ireland. It's 8am in Ireland, so we're very appreciative of you coming on board today.
1: Oh, no no problem at all. It's a a real privilege, I suppose, to follow some of the fantastic clinicians and researchers that you've had on before me. So um, I'm delighted to come and speak with you.
0: To uh, kick us off and get started, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of a rundown on yourself, your background, what you're doing now, both uh, research-wise and and clinically uh, and where you're working.
1: Yeah, sure. So I currently lead the upper limb rehab team at the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin. I suppose I'm first and foremost a clinician, so I primarily treat shoulders and my current caseload is twofold. I see a lot of athletes, anything from your recreational athlete through to your elite and residential cases that we have at the clinic. And then the second part of my caseload is I treat some of the more complex shoulder conditions, some of the struggling cases of complex instability and problematic cuff-related issues. Um, I'm also doing a PhD at the University College Cork under the supervision of uh, Dr. Ina Falvey, Professor Anne Cools and Dr. Kath Daniels, investigating the use of return-to-play criteria post-glenohumeral uh, joint stabilisation. So really we're exploring the role of 3D biomechanics and the use of functional tests and assisting return to play decision-making. Um, prior to working in Dublin, I worked as a clinical specialist physiotherapist for a number of years in the UK National Health Service. And it was in the UK that I did my degree in physiotherapy in 2006 and my master's in 2014. Um, I suppose from a, a personal point of view, I'm married to Mark, I have a, a little boy and uh, another one on the way shortly all going well so uh, a busy personal and professional
0: life. Congratulations. Thank you. The clinical complex shoulder stuff sounds really interesting and something we'll delve into a little bit later Uh, but I guess the hot topic at the moment is some of your recent research publications around the upper limb tests and the isokinetic testing and the shoulder strength for collision athletes. Uh, I guess can you start by filling us in uh, with a little detail of what you're looking at here?
1: So there's a number of things we're looking at, I suppose, that it's, uh, we're trying to be quite ambitious in, in kind of trying to identify factors that can predispose athletes to things like re-injury and persistent pain. When it comes to the biomechanical factors, we're looking at things like rotational strength. So we're looking at isokinetic dynamometry results, um, not just peak torque, but torque throughout range. Um, And I'll explain in a while a reason why we're looking at kind of torque throughout range rather than just peak torque. We're also looking at um, some functional tests. And other parameters of strength, such as RFD and explosive strength, because we know some of those parameters are useful in the lower limb. So um, we're interested in some of the counter-movement push-ups, press jumps and box drop lands carried out on a force plate, and the vertical ground reaction forces and kinematics from from, uh, those tests. Uh, joint position sense, because we know that joint position sense may be an area of interest in this cohort. Um, And also the rest of the kinetic chains, we're taking some lower limb objective markers as well.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, you talked a little bit around the measuring the torque versus just an isometric. Do you want to talk our listeners through that, uh, I guess, how you're testing that torque and why? And then if you're using the larger testing devices, is there a way uh, our clinicians can replicate that uh, without those um, expensive equipment?
1: Yeah, sure. So obviously, uh, you know, for research, isokinetic dynamometry is your gold kind of standard. So remember, we're certainly kind of using this primarily as a research uh, database um, and also for some of our, our residential athletes and, and different things like that to be able to identify um, and quantify some of the numbers for these guys. Our isokinetic dynamometry, as we know, is, is kind of really gold standard. The big thing with isokinetic Dynamometry is that it's kind of got a little bit of a bad press in uh, the, the literature in terms of is it prognostic, in terms of does it help Uh, predict re-injury in cohorts of healthy athletes. The the literature is kind of mixed. Most of the literature is in overhead or throwing athletes rather than contact and collision athletes and in fact some of the literature that is in contact and collision athletes shows things like peak torque isn't particularly useful in predicting um, re-injury. McDonough and Funk did a nice paper in 2015-2016 on rugby athletes and showed that isokinetic uh, peak torque wasn't in fact predictive of re-injury. Um, now the, the reason I, I think that is is that peak torque often comes back very quick so remember peak torque um, is just off and off a little bit off mid-range into external and internal rotation and you often find when you test um, your athletes or anybody clinically most of the deficits aren't in mid-range, they're in that inner and outer range um, so, and, and certainly when we're looking at our athletes we find peak torque comes back much quicker than torque say at the inner and outer ranges so we're certainly interested in that not just looking at peak torque throughout range. Um, and probably something that you do with your handheld dynamometer quite frequently, you'd look at isometric um, force throughout range rather than just in that kind of peak um, range. So that's something that we're, we're interested in quantifying and seeing if that's any way prognostic in terms of re-injury and persistent pain. Um, and the second part of your question, is there anything, if you don't have an isokinetic machine, of course you can use your handheld dynamometer. and um, just to be aware of with your handheld dynamometer, you often have to be, you know, to be reliable, you have to be stronger than your athletes and I'm unfortunately not stronger than most of my athletes for testing. And um, so just make sure that you're reliable when you're carrying it out, you know, do some intraday testing on your own, um, you know, between yourselves or your own clinic and make sure that you're reliable. That's probably your biggest thing. Um, and knowing your cut-off values and norm values, and because the normal values for your overhead athletes are very different to your normal values for your collision and your contact athletes are different to your swimmers. You know, so the cohort of athletes that you're treating, make sure you look at the normal data out there. As I said, there's plenty of normal data out there when your overhead athletes and Cools Group um, have done tons and tons of, um, lovely research on that that you can use as a reference point and so I think the biggest thing is whatever you're using make sure that you're reliable with it athletes often tend to like numbers versus just your manual strength testing but of course if you haven't got a handheld dynamometer, you know just be sure to check range throughout and you know strength throughout range rather than just in your your mid ranges or in neutral.
0: Adele you mentioned there around the joint position sense can you Give us an example of uh, some testing you might use around this and, and how important is it for us as clinicians to test this on our upper limb rehab athletes?
1: Yeah, so joint position sense, I think, is another real area of interest um, in the upper limb and in the shoulder. Um, again, from the literature we know and in a review that we looked at, I think there was only two studies that looked at is joint position sense affected post um, shoulder stabilization in athletes. Um, so, again, we have very limited data out there, although we think it may be an area of interest. We don't know yet. Is it prognostic? So uh, it was certainly something we wanted to look at. Um how we calculate joint position sense now we are fortunate enough to have access uh, to a super biomechanical team and access to 3D um, biomechanics. So our all our subjects are marked up and we look at the reproduction tests uh, through flexion. So we look at them reproducing the angle at uh, 50 degrees, 90 degrees and 120 degrees to see if they can reproduce that angle um, with vision and without vision. Um, And we're also looking at a closed uh, kinetic chain joint position sense test. So they're in the press-up position, uh, they lower themselves to a hurdle, then we take the hurdle away and can they reproduce that position. So just out of interest, is there any difference between a closed kinetic chain joint position sense reproduction test versus an open chain joint position sense test? Um, So that's how we're recording it at the moment. Now, I can tell you probably we've, we've had nearly 120 athletes registered into our prospective trial. so these are the ones that have had shoulder surgery um, and come to us for testing at 14 weeks 6 months and 12 months Um, and just you know we haven't analysed the data it's something it's our next step in our project but looking at it you know it's interesting joint position sense doesn't tend to be an issue for them most of it comes back and compared to maybe some of your strength parameters and some of the deficits on the functional tests and joint position sense test in this cohort of traumatic injury or traumatic instability in in male collision contact athletes doesn't actually seem to be affected, but we'll explore that a a little bit more. I think they're a very different cohort to maybe your complex shoulder instability um, cases. Um, in terms of how you can reproduce that yourself, you can often put a target on the wall and get them to re-hit the target with the vision um, op- you know obscured. Um, so you can often do target tests like that and see if it's an issue. And it's something to have a look out for. As I said, I generally find I don't need to retrain this in the contact and collision athletes often. It is not affected from my experience. Um, but hopefully we'll be able to answer that in time um, from the data as well. Just be aware of the element of fatigue there. So there's certainly some studies, you know, Ian Horsley's done a nice study looking at uh, the effect of fatigue on joint position sense. So, you know, if the athlete is fatigued, is the joint position sense down? Um, so that's another element to probably bear in mind. And you can often test it after, you know, pre and, and post game, for example, or pre and post training.
0: All right. Now, you, you, we'll talk through the other functional tests that you mentioned in your study. I guess I'll let you run through what they are and, and I guess maybe give us an idea on why you chose them um, and whether and what sort of sports that's really specific to uh, being whether it's uh, rugby versus overhead athletes um, and, and maybe some insight into to your thoughts on that.
1: The big thing, I suppose, when we looked at the literature and we looked at the functional tests that are out there. So the several on-field tests that you may be familiar with, things like the Y-balance test, the med ball throw test, um, the closed kinetic upper extremity test. You know, so there's lots of different tests out there. The difficulty that I've found with these is if they don't score well, what does that mean? Um, there's very few studies showing, you know, is it again prognostic of injury? Um, Pontiello looked at a, a study with a closed kinetic chain and um, upper extremity test and showed that um, in a co in a small cohort, I think of about 20 um, contact athletes, uh, that it may be prognostic of re-injury uh, throughout the season. Other than that, that, there's very little out there. And then I often found if they don't score well, what do I do with that? You know, if they don't get the numbers that the, the literature recommends, well, then how do we retrain off some of these tests? Um, and when we looked at the lower limb, we know that often... Functional performance tests are gold standard in there. So things like your counter movement jump, your your single leg drop jump, um, you know, show some really useful information in terms of um, deficits that can remain post injury. And I suppose that's where we got a lot of our ideas from. Um, So we want to consider other components of strength such as RFD, you know, the speed at which contractile elements of muscles can develop force and explosive strength as potential risk factors for re-injury. Um, so the things we're looking at are the counter-movement push-up, press-jump, and um, box-drop land test performing a set of dual force plates. We know from our uh, normal data that it's a reliable way to identify modifiable and trainable vari- variables of strength, you know, and that's the really nice thing about them. You can train and modify the deficits that you see versus um, some of the on-field tests that I, I personally struggle to know what to train and modify from them. Yeah, that's probably one of the big reasons, you know, to look at different components of strength and then to make sure that they're modifiable and trainable.
0: What deficits are you finding in those tests and out of those three tests, is there one that you're finding more sensitive or are they sort of testing slightly different things?
1: Yeah, so certainly the counter movement and the pressure um, give you some really nice information if you're just looking at the vertical ground reaction forces so what we find, things like um, peak force isn't particularly useful because somebody could generate quite high peak force, you know. But, but what does that mean? You certainly need to have a look at the force time and um, series data, you know, and um, how they produce force over time. So things like impulse is a really useful measure. So particularly, again, just like your lower limb data, what we're finding is in the counter movement push up, for example, things like eccentric deceleration. Impulse is um, particularly useful. You'll often find quite uh, large deficits um, post-surgery in post-surgery and your eccentric deceleration impulses and also your concentric impulse. For example, in your counter-movement jump as they're beginning to lower down and control that lowering down phase and then go to explode off the plate, there can be quite large deficits there. So often there could be up to 40% differences between left and right. Um, and we know in our normals, that anything between 10 to 15% percent limb asymmetry is... Um, fairly normal when you're getting to 30 40 50 percent difference there you're like okay there's something there there's definitely a strength deficit you know there there's something affecting that you know what can we do to modify or train that so certainly impulse is um, more useful than just the the peak force so if you're looking at some of these tests make sure to have a look at the graph and the output rather than just the values and if you're looking at say a pascal force place that give you just an output make sure as i said to have a look at the graphs and so they're probably some of the you know that eccentric concentric muscle actions are probably some of the most useful stuff that we're finding um, in the vertical brain reaction force data
0: so if you're finding that there is a deficit how or what do you think is the best approach to address that across the board
1: Yeah, yeah. so often if there's say for example, you'll tend to find if there's a concentric impulse deficit on the counter movement jump, it tends to be there on the press jump as well Um, and interestingly eccentric uh, deceleration impulse is certainly more prominent than your concentric deficits in your concentric impulse but say for example if it's a concentric deficit, you can do all your variations on your press ups Um, so you might want to deload in the beginning, get them quite symmetrical in the press up, get them to concentrate on the concentric phase and then you can get them to work on the eccentric phase so you can often do that de load them to start with with a band for example or uh, bring a set of benches up uh, where you're using gravity to help you and get them to train down you know as they progress along your other ways using your med ball drills and so you can get them to do med ball slams Your your basics like your your bench is obviously a great way to do that. Your single arm dumbbell bench is a really nice way to train some of the deficits through eccentric and concentric um, push work. Yeah, so there's several ways to do it. Yeah, mainly you know I'll often. Get the, try and get the max strength up first and then begin to work on power after that, you know, strength speed work and then speed strength work and just be quite logical and progressive in how you approach it. What I'll say is it is definitely modifiable. You can certainly change it if you're quite structured. But sometimes it's just knowing that there's a deficit there. And then that's the really nice thing. When you're looking at a number of tests, you can really get a broad overview of any deficits that are there. You know, and I always think why, you know, if these are modifiable and trainable, why wouldn't we try and change them?
0: From a time point of view, I guess, is there a criteria you're using before you're going through with these tests or is there a time frame post, say, surgery for a stabilisation that you're, you're expecting this to be better? And in your experience, are you finding that, say, at four months, they're not quite there, but then you train them up and at five or six months, they're getting there? Do you have like a rough estimate around expectations there?
1: I think it depends on the athlete and it often depends on access to an athlete. So recreational athlete, obviously you might only have access to them maybe every week, every ten days. So even your ability to program them and address some of these issues um, can be a little bit more um variable versus an elite athlete that you might have access to two or three times a week, you've certainly got objective markers in there that you're trying to reach. So in terms of when we, we carry out these tests, for example, in an elite athlete. You know, the expectations are often very high. These days, you know, they think it's normal to be back between 12 and 14 weeks. Um, And there's a difference to being back and and, and I suppose um, back to performance and, and reaching some of these biomechanical markers so there's a lot to plan in 12 to 14 weeks to be able to nail some of these tests they're pretty tough to to nail and so you've got to really kind of plan and make sure everything has gone well along the route and there's lots of variables that could affect that seeing your athlete pre-surgery is super important if they're anyway stiff and you know if they don't have a huge training history it's very hard to hit these markers over 12 to 14 weeks so it's knowing what your athlete is like pre-surgery get them as good as you can pre-surgery having a good relationship with the surgeon and you know that they trust you to take them out of the sling quite early on so you can do some of the proprioceptive and control work quite early on and often then we'll get them in once they have a fairly balanced rotator cuff in neutral so testing your rotator cuff strength down by their side if that's fairly balanced we will often get them doing some um, push work push and pull work in that horizontal plane. Um, quite early on, often between four and six weeks. And you you kind of have to to then be able to hit some of these markers at 12 to 14 weeks. So essentially, if the cuff is pretty good in neutral position, I'll be more than happy to begin um, progressively loading from there. And then from there, often we'll work throughout range through your flexion and rotational range above head Um, and progressively working on that up to kind of 8 to 12 weeks Um, some of our elite athletes will go through testing at about 9 or 10 weeks it gives them time then to address any deficits there in the the remaining kind of 3 or 4 weeks before they do go back to play Um, but again to pop them on an isokinetic machine and test them at 90-90 degrees kind of range you'd want a fairly balanced cuff and manual testing you'd want um, full flexion so you've got some of those kind of markers that you'll you'll pick up on your objective testing before you'll send them through testing making sure that they're comfortable on the isokinetic machine and and um, your, your biggest challenge is probably testing up in the 90-90 position versus your closed chain positional tests most of them aren't actually you know too bothered about doing a counter movement push-up or a press jump or a box land and um, they certainly have greater fear up in that 90-90 position
0: well we mentioned cuff testing there Adele do you have uh Rough baseline measures uh, that we might use, whether it's handheld or on your um, isokinetic testing there for the collision sport athletes targets around their inner and outer cuff strength. Is left to right sufficient or do we need to see a fair bit more than that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question because we often use interlimb asymmetry as a marker, you know, comparing left to right. But I also think it's really important to look at normal values out there and, you know, what's kind of optimal. Um, so the paper we have coming out is looking at 50 normal athletes um, who've gone undergone ISO. Um, when I say normal, sorry, uninjured un- athletes um, who have, Undergone isokinetic dynamometry, and we're looking at that torque throughout range, and uh, percentage body weight. And as I said, it's so important to look at your cohort of athletes and the data from that versus just athletes as a whole. And so, our our data looks like uh, you know athletes tend to be stronger than probably your overhead throwing athletes in in the isokinetic rotational strength. So, for example, peak torque um, and internal rotation. Tends to be anywhere between 50 and 60% body weight. And in external rotation, tends to be anywhere between kind of 40 and 50% body weight for your normal um, cohort of athletes. And then we look at the torque throughout range. And as you pull into kind of full internal rotation, your ratio of internal to external um, balance is actually almost so symmetrical so you tend to pull about 40% body weight in internal and external in that kind of real inner inner range of internal rotation then when we look at kind of the far range of external rotation in that 90 90 degrees position you know your torque through your external rotations uh, rotators are significantly lower it's that real inner range so about 20% body weight is 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 kind of normal in in this cohort that we looked at of recreational and um, semi-professional athletes Bearing in mind it is only 50 athletes, we are continuing to collect as we go along. Um, And often you find, What they really struggle with is getting that torque back in that inner range. Um, In terms of handheld dynamometer, again, a lot of the studies tend to be more in your overhead athletes and your swimmers. So it's just having a look at the data that's out there. And the other thing people often look at is that internal to external ratio, um, particularly in your overhead athletes. Obviously, if you're doing a lot of throwing, often your anterior cuff or your internal rotators tend to be stronger than your external rotators, and they focus a lot on trying to get that ratio and um, somewhere within that normal value, we don't tend to see that issue in the contact athletes. You know, they don't have those huge discrepancies in the kind of normal uninjured cohort. Um, so, again, it's just having a look at at the data that's out there and using that as a reference point. <laughs>
0: Many thanks to our showcast sponsor in Kangatech. Kangatech is a testing and training fixed frame dynamometry system that provides accurate and reliable measurement of isolated neuromuscular strength endurance and control. Their latest model, the KT360, enables quick and reliable measurement of a range of modifiable risk factors that are shown to be valid and reliable in a range of populations including elite athletes. Used by professional organisations across the world such as LA Galaxy, Red Bull and the Melbourne Football Club. Learn more about how Kangatech can help your athletes or your high-performance program at kanga-tech.com. Now, moving on, just around, we're just touching back around your force plate testing. Um, do you find that those deficits uh, in, say, a drop test, are they related to your rotator cuff strength, or are you finding that they can be independent and separate to uh, a deficit in a, in a force plate test versus um, rotator cuff alone?
1: that's something we were really quite interested in looking at you know do the the deficits or your 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 your, the deficits that you find on your functional tests correlate with some of the deficits that you find on your isokinetic and strength tests and and we we certainly looked at that so we had a look at absolute asymmetry interlimb asymmetry um, on your on your variables of the functional tests and compare them to absolute asymmetry on the isokinetic testing so if you have had great asymmetry on your isokinetic testing it didn't show that it directly correlated with asymmetry on your functional testing so it's potentially showing us something different and you'll tend to find that clinically, obviously, because we've looked at these tests now in, in a huge number of athletes. You know, some athletes can be down on the functional testing, but they're actually scoring really well in the rotational strength and vice versa. And I think just because you're looking at different parameters, you know, you're looking at uh, the contractile elements of the, the muscle and how they develop force versus maximum strength. So you are looking at different elements of strength. And plus, you're looking at different planes. So they're potentially telling us something different. I suppose when we think of those... Um, closed-chained uh, functional tests. We're trying to mimic some of the landing mechanics in sports, like your try scoring positions and different things like that, versus uh, some of the rotational, you know, where your arm is caught in that kind of 90-90 degrees position. So um, potentially they're telling us something different from our, 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 the data that we've looked at so far so that's why I think it's really important and I often get asked the question of you know, if there was one test that I would use to return athletes back to play you know what would it be and I, I don't think there is one test I think you really have to look at um you know all the elements that could contribute to biomechanical deficits or biomechanical issues when you're returning these back to play so I think it's very much looking at a Um, multiple tests rather than one test, unfortunately, which I I know can be a little bit frustrating, but uh, it'll give you a broader picture and allow you to train um, any deficits that you identify. And
0: I guess my last question before we uh, get into some of your rehab um, pearls is uh, around those tests, there's also been some literature and some talk around the ASH test uh, for shoulder testing recently, which also involves force plates. Um, Where do you see that fit with the spectrum of return to sport testing? Do you see that as something that comes in earlier? Do you think maybe it's not as relevant to rugby, but it might be, say, for... Well, overhead athletes or contact, say, AFL, for instance, here in Australia, they're required overhead. Um, is there a room for that? And where does it fit with your tests and, and what's your take?
1: It's certainly something we had a look at when we were kind of putting our battery tests together. And I'm fortunate enough to have heard um, Ben speak a number of times around the ASH test and speak to him, um, you know, regarding the test. Um, so the ASH test is obviously an isometric long lever test um, and a pretty cool test that looks at RFD and um, peak force in those long lever isometric positions. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I I don't think he's correlated it yet to isokinetic data. So we don't know if they're showing us the same thing or he hasn't particularly correlated it yet to the, some of the functional tests, which I think would be really nice. And um, I'm not sure if he plans to do that or not. It'd be really nice to see if it's showing us the same thing or, or showing us something different. Um, I do remember him saying that he's looked at some pilot data, comparing it to some of the handheld dynamometer stuff, you know, in that shorter lever position. And it seems to be showing some other deficits that perhaps the handheld dynamometer isn't paying. Picking up and um, so I think it'd be really nice to see in the future, you know, um, if they're correlated or not, and if it's something else we need to look at. And um, I, I suppose the big thing with um, the ash test and looking in those overhead positions, you know, for me, often gaining strength in that 90 90 degrees external position, I think will correlate with um, overhead flexion. You often find if there's a deficit. In external rotation and range, um, you know, or active strength there, they generally can't get full range of flexion. You know, to get full range of flexion, you need to be externally rotating your scapula and getting that full end range. And don't forget, posterior cuff is super dominant through flexion. So you would expect some sort of correlation between end range, external rotation and overhead flexion. Um, and uh, as I said often if you find that they score well in that kind of range you would expect them to score well in that overhead flexion position and you know I certainly do think they correlate so it'll be really interesting and you know to see if Ben kind of explores that a little bit further to see if um, some of those tests correlate with the isokinetic testing and then it would be a really nice tool because not everybody obviously has access to isokinetic dynamometry um, and a really nice way to look at not just isometric peak force but also um rfd and um, i suppose the dynamic test is more looking at rfd and dynamic movements rather than just in the isometric um, you know is- isometric movements. so I, th- I think they probably all add to the picture um in terms of one being better than the other or one being more prognostic we don't know yet you know that's the big thing that we're trying to have a look at first of all Are any of these values useful in giving us prognostic information for re-injury? But I I think, you know, the fact that we're talking about it is starting to create really good conversations. We're looking at deficits that we can address. We're all trying to change the same thing, you know, and get our athletes as good as we possibly can. Nobody wants an athlete coming back to them re-injuring, you know, so we're we're all probably trying to, you know, reach the same goal there.
0: There's some really good gems there around some return to play testing. And I know it's sometimes uh, I've found personally that you can get a little bit lost in in that at the end and, and what to really nail down. So I think that's a perfect summary and a nice little segue into just, I guess, tapping into some of your knowledge uh, within rehab because you do work full time and see all the shoulders uh, in Ireland, I'm sure. So it'd be great <laughs> to just uh, hear your views. And I guess I was going to kick that off with a question, uh, a little bit of a general one, but... Um, out of all the sort of shoulders you see and some second opinions and troublesome ones and the, the difficult ones that you did mention, what are some uh, common maybe errors you see in an athlete's shoulder rehabilitation that we can try to avoid moving forward with patients we might see?
1: Um, particularly post-shoulder stabilisation, you know, you do come across really common patterns and I suppose it's just access because I see so many of them. If I'm not rehabbing them, I'm often involved in their return to play, testing and decision making. Um, and you tend to see some common issues that arise. So if we take, for example, it'll often depend on the procedure. So if we have a look at the j procedure, which is the coracoid transfer, um, you know, the big common deficits that you tend to see there is issues in getting end external rotation and um, often an active deficit uh, rather than a true passive deficit you know they actively can engage that posterior cuff to get that end range external rotation which I said then correlates with the fact they can't get end range overhead flexion which then feeds into the fact they're avoiding pull-ups and um, overhead presses nippy all of those kind of things tend to feed into one another um, and you'll, you'll, you'll find it's not the big stuff if you get the small stuff right. So if you're able to nail, you've got a really clean external rotation movement pattern. You've got quite a symmetrical rotator cuff. The big stuff comes easy. You know, you'll then be able to get that overhead flexion to do your overhead press and to clear your pull-ups. So often you find is to get the small things right, just like any other area in the body. The big things then come. The other common deficit you see in latter J, which you wouldn't see in your arthroscopic stabilizations or your labral repairs, is a deficit in your anterior cuff. And it's really the only time that you, it's very rare to get a deficit, Well, much rarer to get a deficit in subscap, your anterior cuff or your internal rotators compared to your external rotators because it's such a big muscle group. Um, But the time that you do see it is in a day, obviously, because they often um, have an incision through subscapularis to to do the coracoid repair you'll see this deficit in your, in your anterior cuff and um, primarily in that real inner range of internal rotation. And um, it can be a pain to get back because it's a bigger muscle group. It can be actually much more difficult to recruit than the posterior cuff. And, um, you know, so it's something that, that, you know, that can often take a little bit longer to recruit. Um, and, and you really want to start working on it quite early on. And you often find, it's very difficult or painful to recruit the anterior cuff if the posterior cuff isn't doing its job. Um, so you've got a real balance to think about. So often I'll really kind of work on targeting, honing then that posterior cuff, particularly in that 90, 90 degrees position, and then start to hone in and changing that anterior cuff and that internal uh, range or that inner range of rotation.
0: I'll start with how do you get the activation for the internal or for the anterior cuff?
1: Yeah, so there's some really nice studies. Karen Jinn has done um, a huge amount of work there on looking at cuff activation patterns. You know, she's done some really high quality EMG studies. So, you know, her stuff is is, is like the bible in terms of how to recruit some of of, of these muscle groups. Uh, she put out a really nice paper, I think, in 2017. Look at the most sensitive way of recruiting subscapularis, and in fact, it was in that belly press position. So, you know, the belly press test and that, that gives us our highest torque of subscapularis with the least torque of the surrounding muscles. So that's a super position to start in. So that's a really basic exercise of internal rotation down by the stomach, rotating in. Often I'll start supported, So I'll just offload the arm, give them loads of support. It's super safe. You know, you're not going to put the repair under any issue or any stress there, particularly any of your anterior structure. So it's a really good way to start getting torque very early on in a safe position. And so that would be my go-to to really low the anterior cuff. Um, and then you find it often translates up to that 90-90 degrees um, position where we do some kinetic testing. And um, so get it lower down. We know it's, it's it's the the easiest way to switch on subscap without switching on some of the surrounding muscles, and then you can start training up in some of your higher positions. And um, so some of the techniques and tricks I might use are, you know, handball taps against the wall up in that 90, 90 degrees position where you're tapping against the ball to really get some nice anterior cuff work. You can use obviously resisted band work throughout range. And, and and play around with the use of like elastic bands and, and weights and different things like that because using an elastic band will obviously bring on torque sometimes if you're lying on your back it'll bring on torque in that real inner range whereas if you use a weight the, the by the time it comes into that um, real inner range gravity has kind of assisted you and you've taken the you know the resistance off so just be quite clever in how you use gravity position you know I'll often prone them um you know, support, elastic bands, weights, that kind of thing. And you can be quite clever in how you switch on and engage some of these muscle groups. Um but and bearing in mind I said, oh certainly test your anterior cuff and your latter J group. Yep.
0: Now, uh, around the lager you mentioned there around getting those little things right um, the little fish earlier just to sort of help with the, the the range towards the back end what are some little or I guess around the cuff strength what are some of the best ways to hit those key areas uh, you mentioned there around the bands do you do you use tend to use lower load stuff versus higher load uh, what's some insights into to getting the best bang for buck there
1: yeah. So again, I use a couple of concepts. So I'll use, and again, this is all from Karen, Karen Jin's literature in terms of how do we best recruit some of these muscle groups, and um, so uh, you know things like support is a really key. to look at. So often I'll find athletes Mm -hmm. using quite heavy resistant bands with no support. So they can't actually access, say, for example, an end range external rotation, because this really quite difficult. So they might have a deficit there, but the arm isn't supported. So they can't access that kind of end range external rotation, you know, so start with the simple, give them support and allow them to recruit throughout range. I often start in the flexion plane, So in that 90, zero degrees position, you know, I'm not putting any strain through the repair. I'll work on recruiting throughout range in that position and then progress out into the scaption and into the 90, 90 uh, degrees position. And So using your position and your support um, are really clever ways to kind of recruit that end range. In terms of elastic bands, it just depends on what range I'm, I'm trying to recruit. So if I'm trying to recruit that inner range external rotation in that 90, 90 degrees, position I'll often use elastic bands so the arm will be fully supported and I'll get them to keep the torque on almost small small pulses in that inner range and get them to really focus on um, engaging that kind of posterior cuff because that is super super important that's where they often tend to struggle that end range external rotation whether it's a ladder whether it's a Uh, laboral repair, you know, it's one of the key areas and it's one of the key areas where they feel vulnerable. So super, super important to get that. Once they get it, then you can take away support and then you can do your react work and um, but get the small stuff first because it makes it impossible then to get the big stuff your other trick there is prone rotation like prone rotation is super so either on a plinth or i'll often get them lying on the stomach and um, i put a foam roller under the arm up at that 90 90 degrees position i give them tons of support that they feel really comfortable i often put the foam roller degrees almost uh, the foam roller almost at 100 degrees where it feels really really comfortable and allow them to and um, externally rotate there i put a small weight in their hand. If you start putting a two or three kg weight in the hand, I'm not going to get end range external rotation. You know, make sure passive equals active. So see what they can get passively can you get them actively with the weight so i'll often start with a 0.5 kg work up to one you know one point five even my elite athletes will struggle with anything like a two or three kg weight in that position and and that is for the fine kind of control work obviously if i'm training things like strength and power i'm going to be using my weights and my push and you know horizontal push and a vertical push plane and so just being really clear and I suppose what's your primary adaptation that you're trying to change with your exercise and being quite logical making sure if you're looking at rotational strength that you're looking at taking off torque throughout range you know your other area that you'll see deficits in is sometimes that mid-range and so some of the tricks that I might use for mid-range again often I'll support the arm and I'll get them to use a weight where they pull from that mid range. And um, because gravity, you know, if I keep them in that mid range, gravity will really keep them working and um, quite hard. And, um, so, you know, I'll be quite logical making sure that I'm, I'm taking off strength throughout range. They're going to test good on the rotational strength. And then alongside that, I'll be obviously working on things like your, your strength, your max strength and your power. And um, so they'll kind of go side by side and both will feed into one another. You know, some of your press work will feed nicely into, into improving your rotational um, strength. You know, so they tend to feed nicely into one another and bring on a lot of your strength deficits.
0: I guess you sort of answered the question there. It was a question we had uh, to maybe roll through around latter versus traditional stabilisation and and the consequences maybe on range of motion of latter Do you find that uh, those ones that we do see for latter that may lack that end of range, is that more of a subsequence for missed uh, areas in rehab or do you think that's just a pure consequence of the surgery itself?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the time it's modifiable. It's very rare you can't modify it um, because remember – You know, a lot of this, it isn't like true capsule restriction unless they've really, the surgeons really tighten the capsule, which they don't. They tend to just repair the capsule. And a lot of it tends to be an active deficit rather than a passive deficit. So if you put the, patient or your athlete in a really comfortable position a really supportive position you can often actively recruit that posterior cuff so it's very rare that you know you're not able to get that 90 degrees range in an external rotation the only time you see it is if there is um structural damage to the rotator cuff so if they have like a pasta lesion and um, a partial articular kind of tear in the the cuff which often they do some of the contact athletes do or they have you know surgery say for example they've had a label repair and then they've went in and done something with the rotator cuff like that is game over it is so 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 much more difficult to get a really, um, and so much more time-consuming to start hitting all of these markets when the rotator cuff has been operated on because you've then taken away your dynamic structure and your dynamic support. So a shoulder that's had a label repair, a ladder is very different to a shoulder that then goes on and has also had the rotator cuff repaired in there. Your timeframes are completely different, minimum six months. You know, it's extremely difficult. They often are quite sore afterwards, quite stiff. And it can be really difficult to, to really recruit the, the cuff, particularly if it's quite structurally, you know, quite a bit of damage there. So, um, and, and your return to play rates are very different to return to play rates with just a, a label repair or a ladder. Um But back to your original question around the larger do I think um, a lot of it is structural that we can't get the end range external rotation? No, I don't. I still think a lot of it is, is um, you know, an active deficit there that we can chase.
0: Cool. And I guess around some, some of the intricacies of rehab, and I've seen you do a presentation and, and touched on this before, um, do you treat the cuff as a, as, a, as a whole cuff or are you sort of early on, are you looking at exercises that may maybe selectively recruit uh, the different muscles across the cuff? Um, and if so, how would you do this?
1: Yeah, so often, and I suppose this is a big debate, and uh, you know, in shoulder rehab around kind of local control of the shoulder versus using the kinetic chain to recruit. Um, I don't think there's a right or wrong. I often find I tend to be quite logical in my approach. Um, number one, because I have to be like, if I'm trying to get these athletes back and reach all these markers by twelve weeks, like, there's a bloody lot of work to do there. Even if you see them all the time, you know, you really have to have very little, few mistakes along the way. So I'll often tend to do a lot of local control in the shoulder and try and get that local um, rotator cuff strength working. There's plenty of ways of getting your rotator cuff strength working. For example, you know, we know the posterior cuff is really dominant through flexion-based work as well as external rotation work. So often, you know, they can be a bit apprehensive in external rotation work to begin with, but sure, your way in there is flexion-based work. So you can really get some nice recruitment through Y-type exercises and lying, you're protecting the repair, you're not putting any strain on the repair. You can do all your closed um, chain chain movements, you know, your, your valve side movements and getting some really nice activity through that flexion plane to recruit the posterior cuff and then start working on its rotational torque so you've got lots of different ways in there um, and then don't forget things like when you go on to do things like your jammer so somebody, if you haven't got end range flexion to begin with, you might use a jammer to try and bring on some strength in in, in and, and kind of some max strength into some of your your, your flexion based work is a really nice way to feed into it and then into your overhead press Um, so you might start off with some Y based exercises some wall slides to then prep you to go into your jammer and your overhead press and they all kind of feed into one another over that kind of 12 week period Um, And the same with your. we know with the anterior cuff, it's much more dominant through extension based work. So if you're really struggling to recruit anterior cuff and some of your internal rotation work, you know, be creative, use some of your extension based work, can you get a change in your torque, that kind of way. Um, so, yeah, so often I'll often go local alongside that, though. Fortunate enough, I work with a really good strength and conditioning team. Um, and a lot of players will have their own strength and conditioning coaches, so we don't forget the rest of the body. You know, they're doing their compound movements quite early on. You know, deadlift can be introduced generally once they have a balanced, balanced, cuff and neutral. I'm happy for them to introduce their deadlift. Back squat will obviously hold off until they, you know, they're quite stable in that 90 degrees position but certainly front squat again if they've quite a balanced cuff particularly neutral and up to that 90 degrees position you know can start loading their 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 front squat and then we use single leg stuff like all your single leg stuff gets lovely load through you know if you're struggling and on weighted vests and things like that quite early on to try and get some lower body uh, loads we don't ignore the rest of the kinetic chain i might work locally and then start incorporating it in but they'll go side by side throughout the the process
0: is there ever a time where you'll really break it down to isolating uh, super spinatus a supraspinatus versus a teres minor, teres major to that extent? Or is that a little bit too uh, intricate for your liking?
1: No, no, no. I, I, I think that's a, a really good question. And again, I come back to a lot of those studies by, by Karen Jin um, over your way, you know, and, and her team, you know, they've done such fantastic work looking at. Uh, you know how do these rotator cuff muscles recruit we know for example supraspinatus um, is much more active in terms of um up at that 90 degrees position rather than, into you know, down at neutral. Now, when I say that is you can recruit more supraspinatus with less activity of some of the surrounding muscles up at 90 degrees versus down in neutral. And um, she did a, you know, they did a beautiful study looking at if the arm is supported versus unsupported. And as we unsupport the arm, we get greater supraspinatus activity. So we think not only does it have to do a rotational torque up there, but it also has to stabilize and counteract the thing like, you know, the Of the deltoid and and things like that so when you unsupport the arm you get greater supraspinatus activity and that's really important to remember so somebody's down in supraspinatus you know if that part of the cuff isn't working particularly well that is why we support them we give them a chance allow them to recruit and then we take away the support Um, so I suppose that concept that I was talking about early on comes from a lot of that work Um, and you can't isolate any muscle group we we know that that, you can be probably quite clever in how you recruit some of the muscle groups and switch off, maybe get less activity from some of the other muscle groups. But bearing in mind, you know, they all have an important job to do. And I, I think the really important thing is they need to be good everywhere. They need to be good in neutral. They need to be good up at 1990. Sometimes I do so much work up at 1990 and then I test down in neutral. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's a huge deficit there. Um, so it's really important that, there, you know, we test in the various ranges and they're a the good thread, all the ranges. You know, what you want every box ticked and you can get every box ticked. You know, if you program well, um. You kind of know what markers you're trying to achieve, and you've got some objective criteria there. You can be really clever in how you you work on, um, you know, and engage some of these muscle groups. And um, I suppose Terry's minor is a, is a an interesting one. Can you isolate it, or can't you? And and I, I suppose where that comes into play is perhaps in some of your complex complex rotator cuff um, injuries you know where supraspinatus has been torn and infraspinatus has been torn or you have quite fat infiltrated um you know in front supraspinatus and your left there's really some of your teres minor and some of your deltoid um, and sometimes you might do some work at trying to recruit some of these muscle groups you know to try and give you um you know a, a bit of a way in to to get muscle function and obviously we see lots of patients that have large rotator cuff tears that function beautifully so obviously these jobs are doing a really good you know these muscles are doing a really good job by themselves um, yeah so that's the time that I may have a look a little bit more in depth um, and sometimes I'll get athletes for example we've had one recently that had a shoulder stave a labral repair, anterior, posterior labral repair, I think get about 12 anchors, like a, a full pan labral repair. Then also had a pasta lesion, so had the cuff repaired. Also had a biceps tenotomy. And then when you had a look at the rotator cuff, it was like fat infiltrated. You know, this is a, a young um, contact athlete. And, and, you know, such, such a difficult case, you know, to really get that posterior cuff recruited no matter what range and to bring that torque up. And then we kind of played around with um, Terry's minor and trying to recruit that, bring that into more adduction and add external rotation on and see if that could bring up the torque and the external rotator. So sometimes in your some of your athletes cases you do have to try and explore and that's where some of your knowledge from treating those complex instability or complex cuff disorders really transfers across into your athletes and you know they're your your learning cases i suppose
0: this episode is brought to you by archie's footwear archie's are fashionable arch report footwear designed by a renowned physiotherapist here in australia Endorsed by podiatrists and physiotherapists worldwide and the choice of many professional athletes. Head over to archiesfootwear.com.au and use the code SPORTS underscore MAP for a 20% discount on all orders. This is my final uh, clinical question for you. Uh, And I guess it's sort of a two-part one around return to play. Now, if we have these athletes that often do return to play a contact sport before they've maybe... Ticked all the physical qualities. So let's say they get back to playing sport, they get a little bit banged up, they're starting to get a bit sore again in their shoulder. Um, how hard is it to regain and, and get those wins we need in that athlete to, so they're up to the level whilst they're still playing week to week? Um, is that a really a difficult thing to sort of get the work in there while their shoulder is you know still sore post-game? And second part to that question is, How can a premature return to play in this case, does that have a detrimental effect on their long-term shoulder health in your opinion?
1: We know that athletes go back to play with deficits. You know, actually in in 2019 and 2020, there's been some really nice papers now looking at strength deficits post. These are prospective trials looking at deficits uh, post-stabilisation. You know, and some of them, you know, there was a really nice paper in the Journal of Elbow. Journal of Shoulder and Elbow, I think, surgery, Um, and they showed that six months after arthroscopic shoulder stabilization, a substantial number of athletes had deficits in peak torque, rotational strength, which is as I mentioned, often easier to get back in some of the talk throughout range. I think like 88% of them had deficits, you know, so huge number and these athletes are back playing and um, so we know that they exist there. I suppose the big question is are they back playing? Are they back to performance? You know, have we got them optimal? There's a difference between return to play and return to performance. So you may find some of these athletes then start to reduce their envelope of function. They don't go for the wider tackles, you know, they're afraid to lift overhead, they're afraid to, not afraid, to, they don't like doing things like pull-ups, overhead presses, because they're nippy and catchy. So they work within that envelope of function. And, I, you know, I, I think th- there's a couple of reasons behind that. Obviously, with the latter J, it's such a, your risk of de- re- do, you know, re-dislocation is so low now compared to some of your... Um, Labral repairs and even your labral repairs, the risk of re- of redislocation has reduced, you know, with the advances in surgery. So um, and particularly with Latter-Jays, you know, it's much rarer to see them redislocate. When they do, they're often far more complicated, um, or if they fail. Um, so often they'll go back because they feel quite stable, but there's a, a difference, as I said, between that and actually returning to performance. So they might have reduced range and they might have pain that's stopping them, you know, from using that arm in that full range of function. Um, so I, I, I think certainly, you know, my my preferred way would be to have all those boxes ticked prior to going back, rather than sending them back with deficits because as you said, it can get very, very tricky, you know, and, you know, to pull them out if they're sore then and the pain, you know, they've went on and played a game and they're sore and then the arm shuts down and then they're due to play again. Next weekend, it's very hard to really kind of get your your, your your deficits, but it depends how irritable they are. Sometimes you can work quite nicely with them. Sometimes it can be a little bit more difficult and they wait till they're out of season to try and retrain those deficits again. But your ideal is, you know, clear it up as quickly as you can that you don't have to see them again.
0: We can't uh, talk about return to play without talking about the psychological readiness to return to play. Um, what sort of insights do you have there for us with respect to these type of uh, contact athletes?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think we know from the lower limb cert- literature, certainly, and, and the lovely work that Claire Arderhard has done and Co. and Dale Forstike and those kind of guys looking at a psychological readiness, you know, as, as a predictor of return to play, and re-injury so we know in the lower body it's certainly useful and actually marjorie olds um based in new zealand has done some really nice work looking at first-time dislocators um, and the ones that go on to re-dislocate and things like the temper kinesidiophobia um uh scale um you know as a, a predictor or it's, uh, for uh, to go on and have a further dislocation, so we know that psychological readiness um, is certainly an area of interest. And um, what we're looking at the moment is that the shoulder instability return to sport, uh, return to sport after injury scale by Jeremita and... Um, they published a study in 2018 looking at the reliability of this. So, really, it's a take on the ACL return to sport after injury questionnaire. And so, really, why I like it, it's really nice and specific to shoulder, and it looks at the psychological readiness to return to sports. So, it's one of the outcomes that we are looking at. And it'll be interesting to see because certainly all the literature is alluring to the fact that, you know, the psychological parameters are one of the big areas that we need to be looking at in return, in terms of return to performance, return to sport, re-injury. So I certainly think you can't ignore it. And things like motivation, we're also looking at some motivation factors, self-confidence and fear. And, you know, all of these parameters, you know, have a huge impact on the athlete. So it's not just that physical readiness, but also that psychological readiness that you mentioned Um, and I think they often feed into one another you know if they're looking at some of these tests and they're doing their kind of phase return to contact then they can see that they're scoring quite well in these tests often gives them a real psychological boost so I do think there's some sort of relationship there as the athletes love numbers so they love to see themselves kind of scoring quite well and so often you see that it impacts and the other thing is the type of injury they have as surely as had to have an impact, you know, how they dislocated, the number of dislocations they've had on their fear of re-injury. So there's a lot to take into account there in terms of mechanism of injury you know, previous experiences, their belief systems and all all of those kind of factors that feed into it. But it's certainly something that needs addressing. Um, and I, I think all of us can be looking at that questionnaire. It's super easy to fill out. You can get your athletes to fill it out. It'll give you a really good idea of where they're at mentally, you know, in terms of return to sports. It's not just being about physically ready, which I'm sure you know, Nick, with all your athletes, um, they're very much that psychological aspect is, is hugely important. And uh, how I suppose us as physiotherapists can feed into that um, and there's so many parameters to look at things like expectation management there's nothing worse than telling an athlete they're going to be ready in 12 weeks and you're like you know that was never a realistic expectation you know based on what they were like pre-operatively and you know, all the other factors that they've had a complication. So be really, really careful with expectation management, you know, that is can really mentally scar an athlete, um, you know, if you're setting expectations, make sure you're lazing with the MD, you know, with particularly with your surgeon, because you've got to consider the biological structures, not just the biomechanical structures. You know, is it biologically ready at 12 weeks? Some of these caracoid grafts have the union. You know, you've got to consider that. And as I said, it's super tough to tick all the markers in 12 weeks. So, you know, be very careful with your expectations. Make sure you know it's great if you're working with your athlete all the time. You know what they're like. But if you're seeing them kind of post surgery, and I've never seen them pre surgery, you know, be really, really careful, and um, because things like you know post operative stiffness, you know, deficits and cough will really kind of um, you know affect that that the, those timelines and expectations.
0: That's a super comprehensive take on shoulder return to play, and um, some fantastic insights. Like I've learned. A lot sitting here chatting and I'm looking forward to sort of reviewing it further um, but I guess uh, a lot of uh, a lot of us always learn from from others as well and I guess for hearing the sort of knowledge you have who who are some people you've learned off or still look to and have a, a big influence on your professional career in this space?
1: Um, so when I was in the NHS, um, you know, I worked with some super consultants, gave me a lot of exposure to the different types of surgeries out there, you know, their take on the surgeries, why they operate, you know, and some fantastic clinicians um, that I worked with in the NHS, which really kind of set my footing and grounding into, I suppose, my, my love for shoulders kind of developed from there. Um, And then currently, the people that I work with are, you know, are always inspiring. I work with a fantastic team at the Sports Surgery Clinic, from the sports med doctors to the surgeons to some of the fantastic clinicians. And I think particularly some of the work that they're doing in the lower limb is super inspiring, you know, from the likes of Enda King. We have a fantastic uh, header of um, strength and conditioning, Neil Welsh there, and Colin Fuller is kind of was with the Irish rugby team for a number of years, you know, so you kind of learn from these kind of guys and um, they're super people to kind of brainstorm things with and learn from that kind of the areas that they're looking at and how it transfers across into the, you know, all of the joints. And, um, I suppose, other people along the way. I used to love, you know, certainly doing my master's. Shirley Sherman's work was really inspiring. I was uh, fortunate enough to go out to Washington and, um, you know, uh, do one of four courses out there. I remember a number of years ago. Um, people like Jo Gibson is, is always fantastic to listen to. She's so inspiring, you know, and is always ahead of the game in terms of her knowledge and her experience. She's another super... Superwoman and has been aspiring along the way. Um, Another guy, Matt Jordan, I love his, all of his stuff in the lower limb you know, around kind of some of the return to play stuff that he has looked and limb symmetry index, you know, and, you know, he's been, uh, some of his work has been super inspiring. So, God, the list could go on forever.
0: No, that's, a, that's a pretty uh, highly um, esteemed list and it, it's always cool to hear where um, other people sort of do get the inspiration and, and learnings off. So, uh, look, we won't hold you up anymore. more. Um, It's been a fantastic chat I've really appreciated your your time and your coming on and your expertise. So it's been a pleasure to have you on board.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Nick. And as I said, it's been such a privilege to be asked to come on your podcast, particularly it's always daunting following us both such fantastic clinicians and experienced researchers that you've had on there. So I I really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me today. So thank you so much.
0: thank you and uh, I'm sure uh, we'll get uh, plenty of your work out as it it further comes to hand and we encourage our listeners to sort of certainly reach out and and, um, access your research there that you can find online and and more to come so looking forward to it
1: perfect Thank, thank you so much Nick